Amen. If I ask you this morning about your future, think about your future, what's coming up for you, you might be able to tell me about some things you have planned, right? Well, we've got this plan, we've got a vacation plan, or we're planning to do this, a remodel of the house, or this is happening in the future, we've got it on the books. You might uh, be able to tell me about some outcomes that seem inevitable, right? This is what's going to happen, even though I don't want it to happen. I know this is coming up, and this is going to take place. And probably you would be able to tell me a fair bit about your goals, about what you hope will happen in the future, your wishes, your desires, right, for the future. You could tell me something about something related to that in regard to your future. But did you know that God has already revealed the most important pieces of information you could ever have regarding your future? Forget all the other stuff that you might tell me about what you have coming up. What I could tell you with absolute certainty is that the most important things about your future, your future, have already been revealed. It's already been made known by God. Revealed with accuracy and absolute certainty. The only uncertainty in that whole equation is what you've done with that information. Maybe uncertainty if, uh, and the uncertainty of what you even know. But then the uncertainty of what you've done with what God has revealed about your future. Turn over, if you haven't, to 2 Peter 3, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. That's where we find ourselves this morning. I pray it was a blessing to read through that book this past week. Now, before we look at that main text, verses 11 through 13, let me share a few thoughts about the context here. Specifically, how Peter has arrived at verses 11 through 13. What he says there. How did he get there? In chapter 2, you may recall, Peter explicitly exposes the deception. He exposes the destructiveness of certain false teachers who had or were at least beginning to infiltrate the church or the churches to whom Peter was writing this letter. But God had his eyes on both those who were false and he had his eyes on those who were true as well. This is what Peter says in chapter 2 verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Amen. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Until the day of judgment. Now keep that in mind because when we move into chapter 3, we learn that such people not only distort things like authority, liberty, purity. They distort these things. You can read all about it in chapter 2. But they also attempt to distort away the reality of that day of judgment. The day of judgment that God is keeping them for. 
They try to distort it away. Uh, Peter is not talking here about temporary earthly consequences for these false teachers, as they're called in chapter 2, verse 1. He's not talking about temporary earthly consequences for these scoffers. That's what he labels them in chapter 3, verse 3. You see that? Scoffers. No, he's talking about an earth-shaking, world-ending, cosmos-altering intervention. One that will result in divine and eternal judgment against every kind of human distortion and deception. That's what's coming. These pseudo-prophets seem to have been preaching things like this. Dude, the world is what it is. And it is what it always was and what it always will be. (laughs) That sounds like uh, back in like 1969, doesn't it? Some guy with a bongo drum saying something like that. Man, the, the world is what it is. It is what it, it always was and always will be. So stop worrying about some scary world-ending future and start enjoying life today, man. That's what these guys seem to be saying. That's what Peter is responding to here. What these individuals were or are, verse 5, deliberately overlooking They were deliberately overlooking. What they were deliberately overlooking was the fact that God had intervened in our world. Things always hadn't been as they were. No, God had intervened before. He did this in Noah's time. And he did this by means of water. In the same way, God will speak another word of judgment concerning this world, our world today. Look at 3, 7, chapter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, that now exist, they are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Incredibly sobering, aren't these? These words. And it's that reality of coming judgment. That's how we got here from chapter 2 through chapter 3 up to our verses now. Coming judgment. It's the reality of that coming judgment that prepares us for our main text. Look with me at chapter 3 verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, let's break that down a little bit. Look at verse 11. Since all these things. Things, all what things? Well, verse 10. What did it say in verse 10? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or or found out in judgment. That sense of being found out by this judgment. 
So what do we see? Space and sky, stars and planets, including the earth itself. That's everything, isn't it? That's everything. Everything will come into judgment. The whole created order. Now notice how the word dissolve is not only found in verse 10, it's also found in verse 11. And there it is again in verse 12. Three times. There's an emphasis here on this dissolving, this dissolution. But we also, also notice that the words, there's a, there are parallels to that word in this context. What are those parallels? Dissolve, uh, dissolve pass away, set on fire, melt, burn. These are all describing, similar terms describing uh, something cataclysmic happening. To be clear, this dissolving or this dissolution of all things is not the result of some scientific phenomenon. This is not the result of some human decision, somebody pressing the wrong button. That's not what this is. This is divine intervention. On the grandest scale. This is cataclysmic judgment. And you can be sure of this, nothing... Not one thing will be unaffected by this judgment. Are you grasping the scope of Peter's words here? How big this is, what he's saying. Now, there's so much here about the end of the world. So many interesting little details that could keep us talking for hours. And in fact, they have kept people talking for hours They could talk about the when, we could talk about the how, we could talk about the who. But I want you to see this morning that the emphasis in our text is actually the why. The why is what's being emphasized. Why did Peter want his readers to understand this overwhelming reality of coming judgment? Why does God want us to hear this same word, this very word this morning? Well, the answer is clear. Look back at verse 11. It's so that we can ask, you can ask, I can ask the same question that Peter wanted them to ask. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be? What sort of people ought we to be? What God has inspired Peter to write here was written so that we can be the people we ought to be. It's a simple idea, isn't it? What Peter has written, and we could say that about the whole, the whole Bible, right? What God has revealed there, what he's written, is for the purpose of, of us being the people we ought to be. Not maybe the main thing, first order thing. I'd say the first thing that the Bible is about is about revealing God to us. But in knowing God, in understanding God, we learn about the people that we ought to be. Remember, this is not the ought, not an ought according to your desires. This is who I ought to be. These are my standards for myself. That's not what we're talking about here. This, this ought that's here is not according to the world's expectations. Well, I ought to be this because my mom expects it. I ought to be this because everyone at my work expects me to be this. There's lots of those oughts. 
and they hold sway over us, don't they, oftentimes. That's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about the ought that is according to God's desires and design. The one who created you, the one who can speak authoritatively, ultimately about this ought, your ought. Who ought we to be? Peter goes on to describe it here. We ought to be, take a look on the screen here, number one. We ought to be a people who know the world is passing away. We ought to be, number two, a people who know the importance of repentance. And number three, we ought to be a people who know something much, much better is coming. That's who we ought to be. Let's look at each one of those. So in light of what God has revealed to us here this morning, we ought to be, number one, a people who know the world is passing away. Verse 11 Peter's describing there the person who has truly accepted that the created order will be totally destroyed. He's describing that person as a person whose life is marked by holiness and godliness. Holiness and godliness. Think about this. If you were being swept down a raging river, if you were being swept down that raging river toward jagged rocks, and a deadly waterfall, you knew those were coming up, which would you grab hold of? Would you grab hold of the overhanging branch of a tree that's growing there by the riverside? Or would you grab hold of a cluster of broken branches that had been caught by or snagged on some rock in the middle of the river? Yes, the overhanging branch may be harder to grab hold of, but that cluster of branches, you know that simply will not last. It will break up at some point. That tree, on the other hand, is firmly rooted. It's strong. It's there. It's firm. Those branches, when they come apart, that tangle of branches, you will be swept away in those things, with those things. This is how another apostle applied that illustrated idea I just described. This is how he applied that idea. Take a look. This apostle John said, Do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here's the key. And the world is passing away along with its desires. It's all passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides or remains forever. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Why is the world passing away, we might ask? Because the world has been judged, is being judged, and will be fully and finally judged one day by the one who made it. It will be upended. It will be overturned. 
it will be dissolved. And yet, in the middle of our raging river, in the middle of your raging river, we too often cling to it. We cling to things that are passing away. We hold on to these things. We act like they're firm. We build on them. We allow it to shape us, this world. How we use our money is a good example of this. How we define success is another example of this. The things in which we invest our time are political exaggerations are unqualified faith in medicine or economics or this or that talking head on this or that trusted quote-unquote media source. God's word is telling us that if you know that such things are temporary and passing away and because of that are often tainted as well, you should hold them loosely or not at all. Isn't that what Peter's saying here? If you know it's going to end like that, why are you putting a foundation down upon the world? Why are you acting like it's always going to be here? Why are you acting like it matters most? In contrast, we are called to hold fast to what is eternal. To hold fast to what is eternal. To that which belongs to God. Peter uses two words here to describe that kind of set apart from the world and set apart for God perspective. Peter uses two words here to describe that set apart from the world and set apart for God lifestyle. Those words are holiness and godliness. That's all those mean. They become big religious words. And we get to the point where we say, well, I know what those words mean, but pressed, we don't really, we we really can't give you a definition. We just know they're good Bible words. We know they have something to do vaguely with purity, moral something, right? But what they mean is simply this, that your perspective and your lifestyle are defined by you being set apart from the world and set apart for God. Holiness and godliness. That's what the man or woman embraces who has truly believed that this world is passing away. That one day, and that could be today, that could be this week, that could be next year, that could be 1,000 years from now. It is God's call. It is God's date. It is God's purpose and plan. It could be any of those times But you can be sure of this. Everything that you see right here will be gone. Everything that you've worked in your life to try to achieve and those successes and those gains and moving forward in that way, all of it will come to an end. It will be dissolved. What is anchored in eternity will last. What was done for the glory of God will last. The lives of those around you that you affected for the kingdom, they'll last. What brings honor and glory to God, it will last. And that, that, that praise will redound for eternity to His glory. But the rest of it's gone. 
We also learn here that we ought to be, number two, a people who know the importance of repentance. A people who know the importance of repentance. Look again at verse 12. Peter reminds his readers that they should be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, if for just a few minutes we set aside this idea of waiting for that day, we're left with this very interesting word, hastening. As many of you probably know, it's a word that can mean doing something quickly. He hastened to get to the door when he heard the doorbell. It can mean that. Or it can mean causing something to happen more quickly than one might expect. But that that latter definition seems strange in this context, doesn't it? Hasten? Hastening? Can we really cause the day of God to come sooner in one sense? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Strange as it may sound, we actually can. And the context is what helps us here. Some people will try to go other places outside of the book here to pull in things. This is what it means from this book. Well, no, we actually have an answer right here in the context to explain this idea of hastening. Look back at verses 8 and 9 of this chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact. Don't be like the scoffers who are deliberately overlooking things about God's word. You do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't count time or experience time the way we do. So the Lord's not slow. That's a time word, isn't it? Slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. That's us, human perspective. But He's in fact patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if the timing of Christ's return on that day of God that we've talked about or heard about in this passage, if that timing is viewed in this present age as Peter describes it here, a season of divine patience, a season of divine patience, if we see it as that grace-crafted window, a place, a space for genuine repentance to flourish, as Peter is telling us, then those in our midst, that is, those in a church context who are not truly right with God, who are not truly right with God, they, we, can actually cause the day of God to come sooner by doing that very thing. Repenting. You see, the timing is connected to repentance. He's patient towards you. And so as you repent and you you truly take these things seriously, and you truly come to reject and and you remorsefully reject the way that you've lived and and that you, 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 you turn away from sin and turn towards God, the day of God is coming sooner. Because that's why the timing is what it is. It's patience towards you. He's granting you this space. He's granting you this time to repent. And so I think what Peter is saying here when he uses the word hasten in verse 12, it's simply shorthand as a call to repentance for his readers who are fake Christians, 
who truly are not believers. They need to repent. Peter knows that they exist among this church. And so he's calling them to repentance. This hastening, does it somehow alter God's sovereign timing for that day? No, it does not. Why? Because his purposes have always factored in this human act of repentance. Those have always been part of how he plans and purposes the timing. But we don't need to think about that in terms of the call. The call is to repent. Today is the day of the salvation. Today is the way to turn away from sin and self. Why is, it, why is that so powerful in this context? Because we know that the things that we have been holding on to in this life will not last. They could be dissolved at any moment. It could come to a radical end. Overturn, upended. This adds that clear sense of urgency Peter is communicating here. But think about this. Think about this. The fact that our sin, your sin and my sin, is so poisonous that the whole universe must be destroyed because of it. Those quasars out there aren't doing anything wrong, right? Those polar bears are not morally culpable. It's you and me. Our sin is so poisonous, so destructive, that it will take the destruction of the entire universe to deal with it. How, if you believe that, could that not drive a person to real inspection and repentance? It means taking our sins seriously, as seriously as we ought to take it. But there's a final idea related to this ought in verse 11. We also learn here that we ought to be, number three, a people who know something much, much better is coming. Look again at that final statement in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Ah, the promise he mentions here. What is this promise? The promise comes from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Isaiah 65, 17, where Yahweh declares, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Now think about this promise in light of what Peter has already written. What have we heard this morning? The people we ought to be should flow from warnings about coming judgment, right? We have to take those warnings about coming judgment very seriously. It should, it should shape who we ought to be. Haven't we seen that? Verse 11. The, the, the people that we ought to be should be shaped by sober-minded reflection about the impermanence and the moral infection of this present world. When you know this world is passing away, it should shape who you are. It should change you when you really believe that. Driving you to who you ought to be. But even more important than those even more beautiful, glorious, powerful. The people we ought to be should be inspired by the reality of God's new world. 
described in verse 13 as a place in which righteousness dwells, or a translation I like even better, a place where righteousness is at home. It's a place where righteousness is at home. Even if you rightly reject those cartoonish depictions of people sitting on clouds with halos and harps, and you should reject those, if you were taught to believe that our eternal homes as Christians will be in heaven, that simply is not accurate. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is a very popular notion. It's a widely held notion. I don't know how it became so entrenched, but it is not accurate. It's not what the Bible teaches. As we see here in verse 13, our future home will be new heavens and a new earth. That's our future home. I use this as a bridge with the Jehovah's Witnesses because, in fact, they get this right when so many Christians get it wrong. They get it right, right? Not all what they say, of course, most of what they say they're not getting right about paradise, earth. But they've got that concept down because it is here in Scripture. It's everywhere in Scripture. Take a look at this. At the outset of the New Testament, Jesus declared, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. Later in that same book, Jesus promised his disciples that in the new world, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones. Matthew 19, 28. In fact, this promise helps us understand God's ancient promise to Abraham. Like so much of the Old Testament, we later learn what these pictures represented, that they were in fact pictures, that the promise about the land was really just a picture of something greater, something bigger. For as Paul indicates in Romans 4.13, God's promise was a promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. The whole world. Hebrews 2.5 speaks about the world to come. And Revelation 5.10 confirms that Jesus shed his blood on the cross to make us a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And of course, that's how the book of the Revelation ends. With this vision in 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What will that coming world be like? I can't tell you that. With any specificity, I can't tell you that. How will all this end? How will it change? I can't tell you that. People who try to tell you this is what's going to happen, they're just pulling that out of their left nostril. Right? They're just, it's just speculation. And they want the attention because they want to sound certain about this is what it's going to be like. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't even need to know that or understand how all of, these, all of these things will be changed. What we know, though, about what this coming world will be like is this. It will be gloriously new. New. That's the only word I need. That's the only word you should need, that it's new. Brand new. 
In what sense is it new? In the most important sense. We see here, it will be a world in which righteousness dwells. An everlasting result of the great refiner's fire that is coming in the future. Far as the curse is found, there will instead be blessing. Blessing. Now be honest with yourself. Is that what you're waiting for this morning? Is that what you're waiting for? The word waiting is used twice in our passage here. Once in verse 12 and once in verse 13. In fact, it's also found in verse 14 if you look down there. Another emphasis. Now, uh, our English word waiting sounds pretty passive, doesn't it? Yeah, it was so boring. I was so bored, I was waiting. I was like waiting for like an hour for this to happen. Sounds very passive, sounds very dull, sounds very boring. But this Greek word is not passive, it's active. It's probably better translated watching with a sense of expectation. Picture a family waiting at the end of an airport concourse for their son who is coming home finally from a war zone. Or little kids who are sitting by the window watching, waiting for grandma and grandpa to arrive at their house, maybe on Christmas Day. Think of those pictures. In both cases, the waiting involves watching. It involves looking. It involves hoping to see and ready to act when you catch sight of your loved one. That's the idea here. That's what the word is implying here. But is that us? Is that us in regard to our loved one, Jesus? Is that us? Is that you? For most of us, if we're honest, this end of the world notion is the stuff of movies. And that's it. For most of us, if we're honest, this end of the world stuff is maybe the stuff of Christian fiction, emphasis on the fiction. We wake up every day, not watching with expectation, but simply expecting, in the words of chapter 3, verse 4, all things to continue as they were. It's okay, you can be honest with yourself. You don't have to play play holy joe this morning you don't have to play church this morning you can tell yourself i wake up most mornings thinking i expect things to go just as they've been going things just to happen as they've been happening all things continuing just as they have been and watching this idea of watching for a new world one in which righteousness at home is at home no again if we're honest we might not be comfortable in a world like that Why? Because we've become too comfortable with unrighteousness. We've gotten used to unrighteousness. We've started to adapt to unrighteousness. A world in which there was just righteousness? Many of us, if we were honest, would say, I don't know if that's the world where I want to be. It's good here. Yeah, it's hard here. But it's familiar, it's comfortable, I've figured things out. Brothers and sisters, 
friends, in light of both the destruction of this present world and the nature of the world to come, we should this morning be convicted of our sin. Simple application of God's word. If you're not convicted of sin in some way by what you're hearing, you're not hearing it. You're not really hearing it with ears of faith this morning. You're missing it. There's a veil over your eyes. There's a veil over your hearts. Something's inhibiting this. But again, let me say it again. In light of both the destruction of this present world, the end of everything, and the nature of that new world to come, we should be convicted of our sin. Our love for this present world must be called out by God. And that's what His Word is doing. And I pray His Holy Spirit is doing in you right now. It is calling out that love of the world. It is naming it for what it is. But conviction of sin, in light of God's Word, we know that conviction of sin should lead us to faith, right? It should lead us to faith, to a new kind of trust, If we are in faith looking to Jesus Christ, then more and more we will see in this tainted world the poisonous power of the very same sin for which Jesus suffered and bled on the cross for us. You see, when you're looking to Jesus and you care about Jesus, then you care about His suffering You care about the fact that He gave His life for you. And what put Him on that cross is this cancerous darkness called sin. And it comes from us. It comes out of our hearts. So the more that you're looking at Jesus, the more you'll see that. The world tainted by that. Similarly, if we are in faith looking to Jesus, then more and more we will long for the beauty of Christ's righteousness. Pure, the spotless Lamb of God. Revelation describes Him glowing eyes and burnished bronze. This this figure, stunning figure that transfixed we fall before Him. is so glorious. It speaks of His purity and power. When we long for this beauty of Christ's righteousness, we long that it would fill our own lives. Then we long that it would ultimately fill the whole world. Just imagine this, a new world in which the love and the power that we see at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, the love and the power on display, Christ crucified and raised to life. Imagine a world where that permeates every single person you meet. That's the new world. And the more that you long for Jesus, the more you'll long for that world. The more you desire Jesus, the more you'll desire to be in a place where His image is reflected in everyone that you meet, is reflected in every place that you go. Every circumstance bathed in that beautiful righteousness. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? But we need to connect it back to Christ. There is an incomparable judgment coming to our world. 
But on the other side of it, there will be incomparable blessing. How can you experience that blessing? By doing this. Trusting that Christ Jesus already experienced that judgment on the cross. He already experienced it on the cross. So that those who trust in him will be spared that judgment in the future. He bore that, just just look at Peter, dissolve, melted, burn, that picture of total destruction. And imagine that being poured out on Jesus Christ as he hung, bearing the wrath of God in himself. To escape that coming judgment, we need to believe that Christ bore that judgment for us. But not only so that we would be spared, Jesus rose again from the dead that you and I might even now experience a foretaste of the world to come. What does the scripture say? It says this, For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's the new world. There it is, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does that mean? It means this, brothers and sisters, faith family, we are a preview to the world of what is to come in the next one. Right? We are a preview to this world of what is to come in the next one. And so what is God's charge to us in light of that? May we live in such a way that the beauty of that new world is visible in us now. Amen? That's how we should want to live. That's what we should desire. And may God teach us more and more what it means to wait, what it means to watch, to look for. I love Romans 8.23, Galatians 5.5, and Hebrews 9.28 because it uses that phrase. But all those places use this phrase. We are called to wait eagerly or eagerly wait for our loved one, Jesus. Eagerly wait. Not passive, is it? Active. Eagerly waiting for Him. God has already revealed the most important pieces of information you could ever have regarding your future. And what He's revealed to you and to me is an absolute certainty. This world is passing away. And by the grace of God, a new one will take its place. New heavens and the new earth. So, how is that revelation affecting you today? Though we should be praying for and working for the world's rescue, that is, salvation of souls, may we also, as God's people, long hunger for the end of sin's destructive reign. We should long for that. May we learn to cry out with our brother John, who said this in Revelation 22.20. We should learn to cry out daily with John, whether inwardly or outwardly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.